Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for your company here on ADH TV. It's free to watch. Now, I know you've found your way to the app. But tell your friends, or it's not difficult. All they have to do is to search ADH on their Apple TV app store or on their phone or iPad. Tell them it's the blue icon. Or they can go to the Google Play Store and search ADH there. Wherever you are, you can watch me live Monday to Thursday at 8 o'clock and whenever it suits you. I'm there on the app all the time. And don't forget the website, adh.tv. Everything is there. Later, I'll speak with the New South Wales One Nation leader, Mark Latham. Plenty to discuss with him, including that spendathon budget handed down in New South Wales last week. I said last week, and I'll say it again, two state budgets in New South Wales and Queensland, one a coalition government, the other a Labor government. There was no difference. Both were tax and spend budgets, with government expenditure still out of control. Yet the Reserve Bank is telling us it has to raise interest rates to curb spending. How does that sit with government? Mark Latham wrote on our website, adh.tv, that once upon a time a vote for the coalition was a vote for good economic management and common sense. That is no longer. He will explore that issue with me. I'll also speak with a very impressive Bryson Head, 26 years of age, who'll be joining the Queensland Parliament, making him the youngest MP in the chamber. He won the by-election for the LNP in the rural electorate of Calide, massive electorate. Its boundary stretches from Gingin and Calliope in the east, out past Tarum in the west, and from Chinchilla in the southwest, up north to Biloela. He grew up in Chinchilla and was raised on a beef and grain property. A geologist by profession, Bryson Head says he put his hand up to run because he wants a better deal for remote Queenslanders on issues such as health, roads, and protecting resource jobs. Fresh blood, I love giving them a Guernsey. Compare this bloke with the Wallies running around Sydney City today causing havoc, protesting about climate change by being aggressive towards the police, damaging public property, and blockading roads and the Sydney Harbour Tunnel. Matt Keane, I suppose, will probably catch up with these clowns and praise them for their environmental activism. Now, this stuff is getting out of control. Dominic Perrottet, where are you? Any Sydney cider coming from the north using the bridge or the tunnel to travel to work is delayed by rat bags. They march through the CB CBD from eight o'clock, that's in the morning, hurling onto streets, signs, fencing, traffic cones, and any other roadside equipment they could find in a bid to slow following police and traffic. The extreme environmentalist group Blockade Australia, according to their social media channels, held seminars yesterday in preparation for their planned protests this week. Now, Premier, outlaw these people. They carry on like this because they know they can get away with it. And if laws don't exist to find them $50,000 each or six months in jail, then pull the parliament together to make the laws to do the job. Now, Premier, Premier Perrottet, the failure to act on this stuff has people saying you're a puppet Premier. In other words, the left and the greenies and the ratbags are standing over you. Now, come on, grow a spine, stop the chaos. What do you think, viewers? Email me, alanjones at adh.tv.
Look, you will recall when I spoke to Pauline Hanson on Thursday night, she expressed her indignation about, quote, welcome to country, the almost permanent feature at the beginning of any function anywhere, be it the opening of parliaments, the opening of an art exhibition, an academic conference, a school assembly, and indeed the state of origin last night. It's everywhere. Pauline Hanson had this to say. You know what? I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm fed up with it. I'm sick of hearing it on the Qantas flights. That was brought in by Ernie Dingo. It's not part of their culture. And more and more, it's encroaching on our rights. Um, I, I don't um, believe in giving acknowledgement to anyone past, present or future. People have to earn that respect, not that you're made to say it. Very good. Very good. Six years ago, I drew attention to guidelines issued by the University of New South Wales. Guidelines which at the time the university said were designed to help students avoid unintentionally offending Indigenous peers. The guidelines suggested that we shouldn't say Captain Cook discovered Australia because the word discover was offensive. They wanted to use the word invaded. The guidelines about prescribed readings at the university said, quote, Australia was not settled peacefully. It was invaded, occupied and colonised. Unquote. The guidelines said, quote, describing the arrival of the Europeans as a settlement attempts to view Australian history from the shores of England rather than the shores of Australia, unquote. Adding, quote, most Aboriginal people find the use of the word discovery offensive. Well, the then Dean of the University of New South Wales Law School, Professor David Dixon, said the guidelines were commonplace across tertiary institutions and many public sector organisations. Interestingly, the then Federal Education Minister, one Simon Birmingham, dripping wet with a spine that he must have bought in Kmart, said, quote, as has always been the case in Australia, universities enjoy autonomy when it comes to academic concepts and what they teach their students, unquote. Let me say something at the outset. If someone wants to mount an historic argument about whether Australia was invaded or colonised by Europeans, whether it was discovered by Europeans or Aborigines, that's fine. There is often no right or wrong answer in the study of history. The arguments need to be put in proper context, but nothing in the teaching of history can justify restricting the thinking of university students by some so-called diversity toolkit on Indigenous terminology, which dictates that Cook's arrival in New South Wales must be referred to as an invasion. This brings into focus the work of the Australian historian Keith Windshuttle. Keith Windshuttle is on record as saying, quote, whenever Labor governments have gained power in the past decade, they've made it compulsory for every government instrumentality and many independent organisations they fund to begin every public meeting with a ceremonial acknowledgement of Aboriginal traditional landowners, unquote. Wrote Windshuttle, this ritual is now virtually inescapable. From the opening of state and federal parliaments to writers' festivals, art exhibitions, academic conferences, school assemblies, indeed anywhere those in the public sector gather. Well, that's now changed. The state of origin is not a public sector entertainment. There we were last night in full view around the world. Welcome to country. This has reached such a dimension that you now have senators like Bant and Thorpe telling us that the flag doesn't represent them. And Senator Lydia Thorpe saying, with the authority that being a member of parliament confers, that our Australian flag had connotations of invasion and dispossession. And that she wanted to question the, quote, illegitimate occupation of our country. And for people to know, quote, whose land they are on. And that the first people, quote, never ceded sovereignty, unquote. It prompted Jacinta Price, a distinguished Indigenous Australian, to accuse Bant and Thorpe of, quote, nothing but contempt for the Australian people. But as I argued to Pauline Hanson, these people are welcomed into our schools across the country and presumably preach this stuff to young, impressionable minds, that we're living on stolen land, that we're here illegitimately, and that whatever property your family might have, it, it by inference, isn't yours at all because the first people, quote, never ceded sovereignty. Surely someone has to stand up to this stuff. As the historian Keith Windshuttle said, quote, two decades ago, this ritual was unknown. That is, welcome to country. He said it was introduced without public debate, let alone public support, and its authors had never been named or their purposes justified, unquote. 
But, says historian Keith Winshuttle, since the passing of the Native Title Act in 1993, quote, this has been foisted on a mystified public as though it had the sanction of deep Indigenous tradition. Winshuttle writes, under international law, Australia has always been regarded as a settled country, according to the legal judgments in international law, both here and around the world. And quote, until the law changes, there is no sound basis on which to say invaded. But note, the guidelines are referred to, we're told are, quote, commonplace across universities, unquote. This is what young Australians are being taught, browbeaten to the point of intimidation, which prevents them from challenging the notion of invasion. In short, what we have is not genuine scholarship, but prejudice and political correctness. Some Indigenous academics might regard 1788 as a year of invasion. They are entitled to that view, but they're not entitled to browbeat other Australians into agreeing or to argue via welcome to country that the land we live in isn't actually ours, that we should be grateful that the, quote, traditional landowners allow us to generate a wealth and a lifestyle from which all Australians benefit, including Indigenous Australians. Well, it's time for a dose of common sense, but as you know, the thing about common sense is it's not common. Mark Latham, the formidable leader of One Nation in the New South Wales Parliament, joins us. I should point out that if you go to the ADH website, adh.tv, not only can you find the videos of the program and my editorials from last week or the week before, but there are some outstanding essays by our contributors, one of, one of whom is Mark Latham. He has written a splendid piece, How the New South Wales Liberals and Nationals Went Woke. And he makes the point that, quote, Prior to the turn of the century, business people ran their businesses as an exercise in shareholder value and customer service, rather than as green left indoctrination centres. This gave the coalition credibility as a vote for economic management and common sense. Fifteen years ago, when the corporate sector went woke, so did their political representatives. The fastest growing part of the New South Wales economy, Mark says, is renewable rent-seeking with Minister Keane serving their financial interests and articulating their woke social values. Let's bring in Mark. Mark, thank you for your time again. Look, of today's captains of industry, you say these wealthy born-again lefties never have to meet poor people and help them in practice. They simply have to make noises that go down well at eastern suburbs dinner parties. How bad is it? Well, it's right across the corporate sector. Uh, small business, of course, hasn't got uh, time for this virtue signalling and identity politics and gesture politics. But in the corporate sector, the big companies, um, this is a way of life now. And, and I suppose from their point of view, uh, it keeps the unions off their back. Um, these companies would now say to investors like superannuation funds and trade unions, oh, we're woke. Uh, we've got uh, virtue signalling. We've got plenty of welcome to country ceremonies. We've got uh, rainbow cake days. We've got wear it purple day. We've got everything under the sun for race, gender and sexuality virtue signalling. So this is a distraction from the real corporate mm. task. But it's um, endemic. On, it's on endemic. climate change as well. It's Sorry? endemic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's across the corporate sector, but it's, it's sort of easy work for a lot of these corporate executives, because if the unions are off, off your back, the superannuation investors are off your back, um, uh, they can um, sort of enjoy the trappings of office, as it were, and uh, get about their um, tasks. With, but, but for the uh, shareholders, of course, it's a gross waste of money and a distraction from efficiency and productivity inside these companies. And for many of them, uh, pursuing the climate change agenda, it's a, it's a suicide note. Well, just on that climate change agenda, you write, corporate executives think they're saving the world through so-called climate change action before jumping on their private jets to Davos. And you say the corporate elites now see themselves as social engineers, remoulding the values and political views of their staff. I mean, you're right, Mark. I mean, basically, you now got corporate bosses thinking that they own their staff and are trying to fashion the staff views according to their own. Yeah, it's the new feudalism, and it's not just the private sector, it's also in the public sector where 
uh, public servants have, have barely got five minutes left at the end of the day to, to do their real job because of all the, the woke distractions and and um, uh, societies and clubs and virtue signalling they've got to engage in. It's sort of like a re-education camp to work in the New South Wales public service these days. And the chief uh, offender, Jim Betts, who uh, turned the Department of Planning into a woke fest, uh, he's now been appointed by Albanese to run the transport That's department staggering. in Canberra. So, Infrastructure. Yeah, it is. Jim Betts set up, for example, a special book club for his senior executives in the Department of Planning to study Bruce Pascoe's work of fiction, Dark Emu. Now, what, what has Dark Emu got to do with planning approvals, land releases, uh, housing supply, housing affordability, all the things that the taxpayers would imagine they're funding someone like Betts to deliver? And, of course, he'll now go to Canberra and do the same. Yes, but so I mean, this just stuff coming is back to this, I mean, this is the Department of Infrastructure, Mark, which is managing in Canberra billions and billions of dollars, who did Albanese check with before he appointed this bloke as the head of that department, after he, after well, uh, well, Perrottet yeah. sacked him here? Yeah, well, Albanese knows what he's doing. Albanese is woke and he knows where Betts is coming from and uh, you've got to face the reality that in that department now they'll be distracted with all manner of, of um, gender, sexuality, um, Indigenous, I mean, um, Betts is full-on thinking um, he's the king of reconciliation. He'll be running unconscious bias programs, Indigenous programs. I mean, Alan, there's a list as long as my arm of the woke programs right. that he ran right. in New South Wales. He'll do, do it again in Canberra with the approval of Albanese. This was always the danger. Not so much what Albanese said in the campaign, but what he'd do through his minions uh, once appointed. Tell us about Umina Beach Public School with a gender fluidity class for year two students and the education minister is a member of the National Party in a Liberal coalition government telling seven-year-old boys they can be girls and vice versa. Well, I think it's a form of child abuse. If you take um, year two students, uh, seven-year-olds, and tell them, little boy, you can be a girl tomorrow and girl, you can be a boy, it generates confusion. These are not concepts that are understood by seven-year-olds. Um, and, and, and gender was described by the deputy principal as how you feel on the inside, not biological science. I mean, shouldn't the starting point for a school be to teach science? Uh, we're always told, follow the science. Well, what about biological science? So Uminer Beach has gone down this path. They ran a, um, um, a class on this topic. Uh, they misled the minister, uh, Sarah Mitchell, and, um, and misled the public by saying, Initially, Mitchell said initially, oh, this was uh, out of class time. I've got the documents and exposed that in Parliament it was in class time and for the uh, number of students who opted out of it through their parents, they had to go do alternative classes. So how about literacy and numeracy, Alan? We, we, we've got a situation yeah. where in year one, 43% of our students don't pass the year one phonics check. That's just the basic sounding out of their words. We have 12,000 year six students in New South Wales who go to year seven essentially illiterate. Now, uh, you can teach gender fluidity, but it's wrong. It's a form of child abuse and, and, and it's a distraction from the basics of learning. Are you serious that the deputy principal of this school has told parents, and I quote, as part of our child protection unit, year two classes will participate in a lesson about gender diversity. Gender refers to the way that you feel on the inside. It might be expressed by how you dress or how you behave. And for some people, these things may change over time, unquote. Are you seriously telling us that a deputy principal has written this to parents? Yeah, absolutely. Um, parents came to me with the documentation. Uh, that's what she put out. Uh, it's ironical. They say it's part of the child protection unit. They're trying to pretend it's part of the New South Wales curriculum. I regard it as, as child abuse. But that's what they're saying, how you feel on the inside. But, but how does a seven-year-old feel on the inside about gender? I mean, this is not something that will cause anything other than confusion and distress and dismay. Utterly, utterly. And... Um, and, and, and if, 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 if teachers truly believe this, at least wait until the, um, the, the students are adults, 18 and above. But, but uh, if they push Dominic, this in universities and all that, people can make up their own mind as adults. Dominic the seven-year-olds here are being used as gender forms. Um, Dominic Perrottet wants to be the education premier. Sarah Mitchell is a national party education minister who defended the school and praised the teachers. In how many schools are children going to gender fluidity sinkholes like Umina Beach? 
Well, we know of that one and some others where they'll talk, they'll uh, urge the students to do uh, degendered pronouns. Uh, don't use him and her, he and she. Uh, we know of schools that have gone down that path. And, and Alan, this is one of the difficulties for not just uh, legislators like me, but also parents. Most particularly, we don't know what's happening in the no, classroom. No, and it's time don't. to bring back the school, the school inspectors. It's time to bring yeah. back the school inspectors to say, uh, learning is being taught the right way, best practice uh, a classroom um, um, activity, and that the curriculum is being followed and we haven't got this junk, this no. dangerous junk in our schools. So no, I mean, we yeah. need to know what's happening in classrooms. And if Perrottet wants to be the education premier, he should bring back those inspectors. You're the chairman of the Upper House Education Committee. Did you not recommend to the Perrottet government that where gender issues have arisen for a child at any government school, the parents must have an automatic right to be told what is happening. Did Dominic Perrottet reject that proposition? Well, his minister has, and Perrottet hasn't overridden her. So that's the danger that uh, our recommendation to say that if gender comes up as an issue, the parents must always be involved. That's not government policy. There will be exceptions, uh, tragic exceptions uh, from the experiences I've seen where the parents are kept in the dark. And I can guarantee you this, Alan, nothing good ever comes from keeping the parents in the dark. The parents don't have a six-week holiday at the end of the year. They don't have the weekend off. Some of these teachers, you never see them again. They go to a different school. The parents don't have that luxury. The parents are there always picking up the pieces. And uh, I've got to say, the by far the most distressing constituent work I've ever done in politics over many, many years is to talk to mums who've been kept in the dark by the school and are going through this gender transition with their children, and it's a nightmare. Well, just answer this for the benefit of parents watching. Has the New South Wales government, the Perrottet government, authorised gender fluidity lessons in classes to people as young as year two? Yes, they have. Well, your minor beach is the example and asked to um, stamp it out that the National Party minister, you know, whatever's happened to the National Party, uh, gave it her approval and said this was okay. So if so a boy that, that comes to school, to so if a boy, Mark, sorry to interrupt. If a boy comes to school tomorrow and says, I mean, it was a boy yesterday, and he says tomorrow he's a girl, should the school not tell the parents? Well, well, it's worse than that, Alan. Under Perrottet Mitchell policies, if the seven-year-old boy, having done the class, comes to school and says, uh, I'm a girl and you can't tell my parents, the school is obliged to follow the instructions of a seven-year-old. The kids are now in charge of the schools in this regard. That, that, the government policy is if a seven-year-old says that, the school will not tell the parents, which I just find an abomination, a disgrace, and something that that that, that must be corrected at, at the first opportunity. It can't be allowed to stand. And, I mean, this is a Liberal National Party government. That, that's the very point you make. You just said then, the use, you're arguing this is the worst policy you've seen in your 35 years of public life. And, and a government is doing nothing about it. I just want to come back to this Jim Betts, by the way, because we spoke about this bloke who was the head of the Department of Planning, Industry and Environment, where he was a disaster. And you've just got to look at the log jam still in place trying to get housing approvals through planning. Berejik Liam made the bloke head of the Premier's Department. I mean, the public know nothing about this. The top bureaucrat in New South Wales, Perrottet, to his credit, became Premier, immediately sacked him. But this is the bloke who kept talking about workplaces for people with a diverse sexual background. And he told his staff in July last year to observe the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, Interphobia and Transphobia because of the teachings of God. And, and, out, and just repeating, Anthony Albanese has made this bloke head of the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development, Communication and the Arts, responsible for billions of dollars of taxpayers' money. What redress does the taxpayer have, Mark? Well, uh, vote out the government that sent Jim Betts to, to Canberra. He was rejected in Macquarie Street. Alan, nobody had heard of him three years ago. Nobody had heard of this bloke. But I start getting a, a steady stream of material from his uh, uh, staff in the department saying, we just want to come here and do our job. But look at all this uh, woke rubbish. A Bruce Pascoe uh, book club or a sexuality uh, session I've got to do or, or something on gender. Um, and, and I raised it in Parliament to say, this is what's going on behind the scenes. If you think the public service is working for the public, think again. It's working for woke 
virtue signalling, and, and, and Betts was by far the worst. They even, Alan, had this committee set up to do something about uh, girly pictures on the change rooms and toilets of construction sites. Now, Sydney has got a shortage of, of, of released land and housing sites, and this bloke was distracted by what pictures they put up in the toilet of a construction site, supposedly under the, the banner of gender equity to get more women involved. Well, you know, strike me pink. Isn't it time Absolutely. just to get to the basics of doing your job? Oh, thank God for you. Thank God for you. I just should say a final word on this. Following the appointment, Tom Forrest from the Urban Task Force said, quote, Jim Betts' record stands for itself in Victoria, New South Wales and now Canberra. He's proven to be very impressive in job interviews. Having run the New South Wales planning system into the ground, one can only hope his performance improves the third time around in Canberra. Mark, great to talk to you. Thank you for your time. We'll talk again next week. Thanks, Alan. Cheers. Mark Latham, where would we be, though, without people like Mark Latham? It's extraordinary, but this is government in Australia. The wokeness, this is the Liberal National Party government allowing this in our schools in New South Wales. So the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, wants to be known as the Education Premier, and there's talk of him, quote, driving school reform. Some of this, such as the free year of education before school, has been jointly announced with the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, and it focuses rightly on early childcare education. It is a bit of a confusing concept because preschool is known as kindergarten in Victoria and Queensland, they call their first year of schooling a prep year. In New South Wales, the year before school starts is called preschool and kindergarten is the first year of school. So it's pretty confusing. Victoria, though, will launch its reforms in 2025 and will have universal preschooling for four-year-olds within a decade. But free part-time kindergarten programs will be available for all three- and four-year-old children in Victoria from next year, free. The saving will be about $2,500 per child. New South Wales will introduce a full-time pre-kindergarten, where kindergarten is the first year of school, a full year of pre-kindergarten for all children in the year before school by 2030. Now, the proposals have genuine merit. These years are most important and they're formative phases of a child's education. But when New South Wales Premier Perrottet starts talking about paying teachers based on performance, he demonstrates that he doesn't know a lot about education. And the public certainly agree, writes Kathleen from Vincentia, quote, we now have a Premier who wants to be known as the Education Premier. How about consulting those who do the job every day? Performance pay is a sneaky attempt to defy, divide teachers. The students who most need the best teachers may not be those students who produce the best results. Great point. Margaret of George's Hall says, how will this be measured? Student engagement, student growth, student wellbeing, parent satisfaction, academic results? All of these vary depending on socioeconomic and other conditions. Hopefully it won't be through NAPLAN results, which are flawed, faulty and fudged by many schools. Bruce of Ingleburn hits the nail on the head. Quote, Dominic Perrottet has a recycled idea about paying teachers according to the merit of their work. Let's take the first step by trialling this with politicians and refine it so it might work with a bigger bunch of people, say, teachers and nurses. How do we judge the performance of politicians? How should we pay them? Who makes the decisions? Suggestions are welcome. Unquote. Well, the educational folly of paying teachers based on performance, which presumably means the results gained by their students, has a simple problem at its core. Supposing Johnny is bad at English, but very good at cricket. The cricket coach seems to be able to get the best out of Johnny, but the English teacher can't. So the English teacher speaks to the cricket coach and asks him if he can have a word to Johnny about the importance of doing well in English, because you need to do well in English to progress into every tertiary education course. Now, Johnny trusts the cricket coach, who has a yarn with him about getting stuck into his English, listening to the teacher, and says, Johnny, I want you to be as good at English as you are at cricket, unquote. Well, Johnny knuckles down, and he does really well in English. Who gets the teacher performance pay increase because of Johnny's progress? The cricket coach or the English teacher? So-called teacher pay based on performance is an utterly flawed concept. And in all the discussion about educational reform and the New South Wales Premier 
wanting to be an education premier, one issue is never discussed. What is being taught in the classroom? If children don't know anything about Australian history and geography, if they don't know where Cape York is, if they don't know who Burke and Wills are in the history of Australia, if they don't know why Macquarie Street is called Macquarie Street or why Brisbane is called Brisbane, if they have to hesitate when asked, what are seven-eighths? And spare the thought that they may well end their secondary education without being able to recite a verse of poetry and have never heard of Bronte or Dickens or Thomas Hardy, let alone read any of their, read any of their work. If you want to be called the Education Premier, forget all the fads, forget the nonsense about performance pay and focus uncompromisingly on what is being taught in the classroom because our results compare appallingly with those of lesser developed countries. The reason is simple. Today's school children know more about welcome to country, the certainty of climate change, the fear that the world's going to end, while the fundamentals of education, those things which produce from the educational experience a civilised individual, they fall by the wayside. No, Premier. If you want to be the education Premier, focus on what is and is not happening in the classroom. All the rhetoric can't escape the conclusion we're letting our children down badly. Well, you heard the Queensland Opposition Leader David Christopher Fully on this program last Wednesday. He's got gears, this bloke, and that was on full display. And he doesn't mince his words. Each day he's reminding Queenslanders of the integrity crisis they face. That is, the Palaszczuk government seems to be up to its neck in questions, and they largely are unanswered. A bit of the nothing to see here mentality is setting in. Last week, the Labor government sought a vote in the parliament against, against releasing the costs racked up by Queensland's Crime and Corruption Commission. The costs are the result of legal action due to the former Deputy Premier Jackie Trad seeking to use the Supreme Court in order to block the release of a Crime and Corruption Commission report detailing her hiring of the former under-treasurer Frankie Carroll. The under-treasurer is the bureaucratic head of Treasury. A group of Labor MPs just didn't turn up for the vote. In other words, they were protesting against the government's determination not to release the costs. Taxpayers' money, mind you. Two of them are full-time committee members, Jonty Bush and Jess Pugh, being paid an extra $25,118 on top of generous salaries to be on a committee. The end result is the costs racked up by Jackie Trad with taxpayers' money are withheld from the public. Now, I know Anastasia Palaszczuk, and I consider her to be a very decent person. I know her dad as well, Henry, who was a minister in the Beattie government. But these political stunts or cover-up tactics are unacceptable from any government, especially in a unicameral parliament. That is, only one parliamentary chamber. There is no upper house in Queensland. So the only way to review the functions of government is through this committee system which consists of MPs across the political divide. Queenslanders deserve transparency and they didn't get it last week. Then there was the budget, where the Treasurer Cameron Dick, who wants to succeed Palaszczuk as Premier, broke an election promise by introducing new taxes and increasing existing ones. Yet he said countless times before and during the last state election when asked that, quote, there won't be any increased taxes, we've said that very clearly from the start. No new taxes from the Labor government if we are re-elected, unquote. That was Cameron Dick in October 2020. Last Tuesday, he whacked business with three new or increased taxes, hiked the rate of coal royalties, I thought we hated coal, hiked taxes on wagering companies and introduced a mental health levy on so-called big businesses, which aren't really all that big. The LNP leader, Christopher Fully, is thankfully taking up the fight. Well. All that by way of background, there is a new addition to the Liberal National Party team in the Queensland Parliament. His name is Bryson Head. He's only 26 years of age and he won the by-election for the rural electorate of Calide, making him Queensland's youngest MP in the chamber. Now, Bryson grew up in Chinchilla on a beef and grain property. I know it well. And he's a geologist by profession, a Bachelor of Science majoring in Earth Science. He's worked in the resources sector in Canada and the Hunter Valley before last year taking up a role in Anglo-Americans coal mining operations around Morumbah. Morumbah is about 145 kilometres southwest of Mackay. 
And I might add, it's produced some notable sports people, has Moranbar. Now, the electorate of Calide covers a massive agricultural area, but also includes at least four major coal mines, a number of coal seam gas projects, and the Calide coal-fired power station. It's a massive state electorate. It's boundary stretching from Jinjin and Calliope, that's in the east, out past Tarum in the west, and from Chinchilla up north to Biloela. Well, the new Queensland MP for the seat of Calide is Bryson Head, and he joins me. This is a bit of a pioneering thing for us all here because I think I'm right in saying, Bryson, good evening to you. Now, you're in a, you're in a, this is the nature of, of course, regional Australia, where they don't have the benefits that are available to people in the city. I think Bryson is talking to me from a service station at John Darien, which I know, which I know well. I was educated not far from there. Bryson, good evening, congratulations. And we'll hear a few trucks going past every now and then. Uh, the state member for Calide, how does that sound? Uh, it's uh, it's a bit different, Alan, and thanks for, for having me. And yes, I this is the third internet connection that I had to change across to to be able to communicate with you tonight. Uh, you know, regional Queensland gets left behind on many fronts and telecommunications and so on. So Absolutely. I was halfway home from uh, Brisbane and here I am. You said you put your hand up because you've always been a proud advocate for your community and for regional Queensland. Peter Dutton says the regions have been ignored. I guess the struggle you had in talking to me tonight proves that point, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, roads, healthcare, infrastructure, um, the state, the current state of crime in Queensland, um, of course, telecommunications, uh, how the ag industry and, and the resources sector get taken for granted. And of course, we saw that in the state budget last week. Um, as, you, as you mentioned just before, that, you know, people, we, we apparently hate coal and yet we're, we're happy to tax it and reap the, the rewards as a state from it as well. Yes. You've had many great supporters, including Matt Canavan. You can't have a better teacher than that bloke, can you? No, I, I've known Matt for quite a while and he's a great bloke and he's a conviction politician and, and he's someone that works hard for, for what he cares about and what he uh, Bryson's leader, David Christofulli, whom I referred to earlier, I think summed it up when he introduced this young man and he said, young people deserve a voice. This is David Christofulli, opposition leader in Queensland. David Christofulli said, I said when I became leader of the LNP, I wanted to see more young people, more women, more people from multicultural backgrounds and more people from small business backgrounds. This is the start of generational change, unquote. Bryson, what do you say to other young people? who are considering entering public life? I say get involved, put your hand up, have a crack. Um, you know, we're not going to get anywhere as a society if people sit around and, and just, you know, want to talk about things but not want to do. Uh, for us to have success into the future, we, we want to, we've got to do things, we've got to be loud and proud of standing up for our community. And, and I'm hoping I can encourage people to do that. Well, see, Bryson, you're a young bloke. That's the asset here because the young people might listen to you. How can you stop encouraging school children to skip school, to protest in the streets about climate change when half the stuff they're being told is untrue and they know little, or to stop hating their own country? Well, it's probably a good question. I don't, I don't have the uh, answer, but uh, we've probably got to start with their parents. And I know some, some parents, Parents have tried to do their kids better and then the school system and some of the mates have led them astray. We need to get back to the reality of, of Australia and where we come from um, and where our food comes from and where resources come from. You know, we all know, you and I both know that many people uh, think that. So we've got to, got to start bringing people back to the bush. We've got to reconnect with the, you know, bring the city cousins, city country cousins connection back to society and, and, um, and, and go from there, and, and, and I'm going to actively encourage people to come to my community. Good on you. I mean, you represent an electorate, and, and our viewers, forgive the breaking up there a little bit, but it's worth listening to this young man. This electorate that he represents uh, involves mining and resources. We're now in an energy crisis, Bryson, thanks to the demonisation of the coal industry and this premature push to renewables. Just say, from a young person's perspective, You've lived in the industry. What is the importance of coal to our economy and meeting our energy needs? 
Well, it's, it's very important. And we saw uh, a couple of weeks ago just in Queensland when the coal-fired generators at Callide Power Station were down for maintenance, Queensland was short on energy and, and we we're getting told not to put the dishwasher on and to save energy and, and all this. And then once maintenance was finished and those generators were back online, all of a sudden we had uh, the problem was, was over. So um, that just shows you in the short term how important it is, but into the long term. And as far as the economy, um, you know, these extra taxes, um, I don't know the figure off the top of my head as far as how much we pulled off the last budget, but um, these new t taxes that the, coal, uh, the Queensland government is taxing, the coal industry yet again is, is meant to bring just in the next quarter, I think, $4.8 billion into, into the Queensland but, uh, state coffers. So um, think of all the services that can pay for. So well, what the industry about, gets taken for granted a lot. What about, uh, we're running out of time, but what about fighting, would you be fighting for a brand new heli, high efficiency, low emission, coal-fired power station to be built in Queensland. They're building about 320 around the world and using our coal to fire them. That'd be a good start, wouldn't it? Oh, look, I'd, I'd support projects across the board that bring us cheap, reliable energy and, and that give us the opportunity to develop as a nation. Um, and, and whatever that looks like across the board, I, I'm, I'm there to back it. Good on you. Good on you. We're running out of time, but I just want to make this point to our viewers uh, because uh, Bryson made this point earlier, but I know that when he was at university, he took some of his friends from the city out to the bush and they were of his age and they'd see a big crop of sorghum and they'd say to Bryson, what's that? So at the end of the, end of the, end of the interview, Bryson, do city people really understand the way of the bush? No, they don't. Uh, many don't. Some do. Um, but we've got to show them that as well. And, and that's part of why I, I bring my mates out to the bush, to show them that there is, in fact, plenty of trees in rural and regional Queensland and that farmers uh, actually need their topsoil to, to grow a crop because people uh, forget that and assume that we just let it all run out to the reef. And, um, and of course, even just showing people what different crops are is a good step. So we need to do more of it. Good I'm happy you. to bring more people from the city out. Which... Good on you. Great to talk to you from the John Derry and Servo. It's, it's a pioneering interview, I've got to tell you, proving, of course, that regional Australia lacks appropriate telecommunications. Bryson, good luck, congratulations, and we'll keep in touch. Thanks, Alan. There Thanks is Bryson, the 26-year-old recently elected member for the state seat of Calide in the Queensland Parliament. Look, I wonder how many people in New South Wales, and this has been implemented across Australia, are aware that plastic bags thinner than 35 microns were outlawed from the 1st of June. 35 microns. A micron is one thousandth of a millimetre. The average human hair is 70 microns. Like most other politically inspired religions, this dictate is just accepted and the nation's retail associations have fallen into line. On June 1, New South Wales was the last of the Australian states to enforce the ban. The argument is that 2.7 billion plastic items end up in waterways across New South Wales every year. I've no idea who's counting or what validity that number has, but the justification of these bans lies with the argument that single-use plastic items equate to 60% of the state's litter and businesses caught supplying these banned bags of 35 microns thick or less face fines of between $11,000 and $275,000. And you've got some minister reading the bureaucratic script that from November, single-use plastic items like cutlery, straws, plates, bowls, polystyrene foodware, cotton bud sticks will be banned as well. But now comes the big however. Just like the energy religion, where you must demonise coal, but when the lights look like going out, coal is king again, so do the bans don't apply to thicker plastic bags or produce bags or waste bags or, quote, essential product packaging. So just like coal comes to the rescue, so too can we demonise plastic bags, but they too come to the rescue. Remember, when you get your lamb chops from Woolworths or Coles, they're wrapped in plastic, very thin plastic, but it is essential product packaging. The dog poo bag is okay. The bin liners, the medical bags, and the thin bags you get your meat in at the deli, and most bags distributed by major supermarkets and boutique stores are thicker 
than 35 microns, they're unaffected. But hang on, if that's all okay, your supermarket bag and your boutique stall, why are we charged when what we buy is delivered to us in a plastic bag? Allow me to make one or two unfashionable observations. And you guessed right, Matt Keane is at the centre of all of this. He wants to ban all single-use plastic bags by 2025. When he spoke in the Parliament last year, that was all going to happen within six months, so by the end of last year. Of course, that hasn't happened. But pardon the pun, this rubbish is amongst the pile that passes undebated through a fairly ignorant New South Wales Cabinet. Mark Latham got it right at the time when he said that Keane has little life experience and is, quote, killing off the great Aussie picnic and making children's parties and barbecues harder for families. As Mark rightly said at the time, this will be an inconvenience for families. Things like plastic plates and cups are often the affordable option. Let me add another inconvenient truth. The University of Pennsylvania Law School authored a study which raised real concerns about harmful bacteria in reusable grocery bags as opposed to plastic bags. The study concluded simply, along with a Danish government study, that the lightweight plastic shopping bag, which has been banned, is much better for the environment than all the alternatives. And the author of a landmark study into plastic bags, an Australian, has likened their removal from supermarkets as a religion, suggesting arguments against plastic bags are, quote, complete furfies you can demolish in a few minutes of analysis. The author is Philip Weichart, a Peter Costello appointment to the Productivity Commission and the lead author of a 2006 Productivity Commission inquiry into waste management. About the banning of plastic bags, he said, quote, this is largely a religion. Plastic bags are useful, hygienic and waterproof. They have multiple uses and functions. The evidence that plastic bags hurt marine life is very unpersuasive. He said, and I quote, the Productivity Commission in 2006 concluded plastic bags take up little landfill space and their inert characteristics can actually help to reduce a landfill's potential for adverse environmental impacts. He argued that the true extent to which plastic bag litter injures population of marine wildlife as opposed to individual animals is likely to remain very uncertain because it's extremely difficult to measure. A study last year in Britain, where plastic bags are taxed, found reusable bags need to be reused, that is these green grocery bags, up to 173 times before they had a lower environmental impact than ordinary plastic bags. And a University of Pennsylvania study in 2012 found that a San Francisco 2007 plastic bag ban killed people because reusable bags increased shoppers' exposure to harmful bacteria that can infect them. As the Professor of International Economics at RMIT University, Sinclair Davidson has argued, all up, this is a virtue signalling policy, unquote. It is indeed Matt Keen and co reading from the Bible of green religion and seeking to impose their views on others. They've done no reading of their own, but we shouldn't be punished by their ignorance on plastic bags or on coal. The argument that plastic bags are dangerous to the environment is not based on science, research or fact. Well, before we go, on the subject of nuclear power, I wonder if we might finally be starting to make some progress. I have a hunch that the recent blackouts on the east coast of Australia and the skyrocketing electricity prices have something to do with this. The public are now awake to the renewable energy utopia. It does not exist. Why a country rich in resources and minerals has the world's most expensive electricity has to be a product of bad government policy. Successive governments from both sides are to blame. If we are to go down this net zero road, which I totally reject, but if we are to do it and not bankrupt the country, the way to do so is nuclear energy. Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs told me last week that according to a recent survey by the IPA, a majority of Australians now support nuclear energy. That is why when politicians like 
the climate change and energy minister, Chris Bowen, describes nuclear energy as a complete joke. They themselves risk being the joke. As the columnist Piers Ackerman wrote at the weekend in the Sunday Telegraph, quote, new figures on the corrected costs of nuclear power, renewable wind and solar, gas and coal, show that nuclear energy is cheaper than the other power sources, unquote. That is true. Australia ought to be embracing small modular reactors. But how can we when we've got the short-sightedness of Chris Bowen to deal with? Bowen said of nuclear energy, quote, nuclear is the most expensive form of energy. We have a cost of living crisis. Energy prices are going through the roof. And that's the big bright idea. Let's have the most expensive form of energy we can possibly think of. You dumbbell Chris Bowen. You've come unstuck once or twice before because of your ignorance. Remember the tax thresholds, which has shadow treasurer you didn't know? And then on the tax attack that you wanted to unleash on Australians at the 2019 election, you said, well, if you don't like it, then don't vote for us. And we took your advice. Just because, Chris Bowen, you've got the ministerial car and salary doesn't mean you need to traffic in such hubris. The reality is renewables cannot do the trick. We need large-scale, reliable baseload power, which is available 24 hours a day. And if you want it clean, then nuclear power is virtually emissions-free. In Australia, nuclear power has been banned since 1986, yet we've got a third of the world's uranium. The technology is so advanced that these small modular reactors, or SMRs, can be placed in remote areas, unlike old reactors, that needed to be near large water catchments. The new SMRs can be buried to withstand any physical or natural disaster. They can be mass-produced in an off-site factory and shipped to locations and then assembled. The virtue is they need only 5% of the nuclear fuel that is needed to power large conventional reactors. Every year, we export more than 400 shipping containers of uranium, enough to generate all of our own electricity with zero emissions. But instead of producing electricity at home, Australian uranium is used to produce vast amounts of clean energy in America, in the European Union, in South Korea, in China and elsewhere. How smart are we? Not very. Well, that's it from me tonight. Thank you for being with us. I'll see you tomorrow night on ADH TV, the last line of common sense in Australia. Good night.